I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Todd Nesloni. Todd is the Director of Culture and Strategic Leadership. Prior to that, he was an elementary school principal, and prior to that, he was a classroom teacher. Todd is an author of multiple books, TEDx speaker, and frequent conference presenter. Todd, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be part of today's conversation and honored that you would ask. So cool. Well, yeah, it's great. It's great to be able to have this uh, conversation. It's cool to do it. You know, you're on one part of the country uh, in Texas, I believe, and I'm over in Philadelphia. So, so that's cool. We're able to connect. It is Texas, right, Todd? Yep, right outside of Houston, Texas. Tell me, uh, to, as we get things started, tell me a little bit about your role as Director of Culture and Strategic Leadership. Yeah, so I spent the last five years as an elementary principal in Navasota, Texas. Um, absolutely loved what I was doing, um, but was given a really special, unique opportunity to join the Texas Elementary Principals and Supervisors Association, um, an association that I've been a member of ever since I was a principal, and I just loved them, and they had some needs needs for a new employee to help run some social media, do some graphic design, but also kind of attend some of their events and do a speaking. And it just fell right into my lap and was an opportunity that, you know, I didn't feel like I could pass up. And so I joined their team last July. So I just had my one year anniversary with them a couple weeks ago. Um, but it has been a blast just getting to kind of expand their reach and kind of put, bring, bring them into some new neighborhoods, but also get to meet countless other leaders across the state of Texas and help encourage and provide them some support. Yeah, I know you were really invested in the in the school where you were a principal of. Uh, I bet that was a tough decision for you to make. You know, it really was. It was, I loved my school, my school family, the students. You know, it reminded me a little bit of when I made the decision to jump from classroom teacher to principal. That was a difficult decision as well because I felt like I would lose something. But I'm reminded constantly and what I tell educators consistently as well is I don't like when people say things like, oh, did you, do you miss the classroom so much now that you're on the dark side of administration? For me, it's like that, that idea of as adults and as people, we can consistently pursue multiple passions just because I have a new goal of wanting to be a school administrator. And I jump into that role. It doesn't mean I love being in the classroom any less. I still miss it. I could still go back in it today and love it just as much. 
but a new passion of mine was wanting to be a principal. And then my passion kind of shifted it. Well, I want to pour more into even more adults through TEPSA. And so it, it wasn't that I didn't love being a principal. It wasn't that I knew I wasn't going to miss it at all. It was when an opportunity drops itself to you, I'm one of those that thinks I need to test it and try it and see if it's something that I'm really going to enjoy doing just as much as what I'm doing now. And if I don't love it, great. I'll go back to being a principal or back to being a teacher because I love both of those and they're still both my passion. That's exciting that you've been able to sort of follow your passions. And and it's really cool that those doors have been opened up for you. Within, within your role, do you do a lot of community engagement? You know, as a school principal, I was doing a lot more community engagement um, as in physically. Um, you know, we were always out in the community reaching our people in different ways. We didn't want to just stay in, in the school walls. As far as my new role, with TEPSA, my community engagement now is primarily virtually. I do go out and travel to different schools and visit them and advertise the great work they're doing. And of course, I still speak and present as well across the country and in Canada. Um, But as far as now, my community is very much virtually based and really getting able to pour into people, even if I can't see them face to face every day. Yeah, I want to shift and talk about um, some of your books for a bit. Um, one of your books, Sparks in the Dark, that encourages a love for reading and writing. Now that the book has been written, it's been published, it's been out there. What have you learned from that, reflecting on it, about what encourages students to love reading and writing? You know, that was a really special book for me to write because as a classroom teacher, I taught math and science. And so I never viewed myself as a reading teacher or even as somebody who was capable of helping other kids fall in love with reading. I enjoyed reading myself, but never viewed myself in that light. And I remember reading Donalyn Miller's book, The Book Whisperer, when I first became a principal, and that changed everything for me. And that's where this love and passion for understanding reading instruction and research and building that love for reading and writing. And then I met my co-author, Travis Crowder, for that book. And he had a very similar love for reading and writing, but on a secondary level. And so it was just a natural thing for us to want to write a book where I could write from an elementary and whole picture perspective as the principal. And then he could write from a secondary and classroom teacher perspective. And as I look back on that now, and now the book's been out a little while, I'm really proud of what that that conversations that have been able to be had throughout that book. Um, And that whole idea consistently that everybody's a reader, everybody. If somebody doesn't see themselves as a reader currently, it's only because they haven't found that book that breaks their heart. Because once they find that book that rips their heart out, that they have to go tell somebody about immediately, then they're hooked on reading. And so as I've been able to travel and on present a lot about different ways to build that excitement and that passion in children and adults, I've really just been reminded of the power that books hold, especially during times of struggle, especially when it comes to building empathy or educating others. There's so much goodness in all kinds of books. How are we able to tap into that passion of students so that they can, uh, you know, sort of get that love of reading and then eventually writing as well? You know, I, I really think it begins with the adults. We have too many adults like myself who have been guilty of making a lot of excuses on why we're not reading or why we're not, why we can't get kids excited or they're too apathetic or they don't have the resources. And I've always said that I believe that excuses are just a polite way of you saying you don't want to do something. 
Because if you really were passionate about changing it, you'd find a way to make it happen. You would not let an excuse stand in your way. And so when I think about getting kids excited, my first thought is, how do we get the adults excited? Because a kid, regardless of their age, can see right through an adult who's faking it, an adult who is just doing their job to try to get you to do something. And so I've been really working with adults to help them find their own passions and at the same time, see how their instruction can be made even richer by using different picture books or chapter books or graphic novels or audio books or all sorts of things. And for many educators, what I find is it's not that they don't believe that those things are possible. It's that they've never been shown how. And so it's hard for them to really visualize what that could look like in a classroom. So thinking about the educator, that's really cool that you shifted it and you're focusing on building the passion and excitement within educators. And then they're able to sort of transfer that to their classroom. Has anything been successful with the educators help helping to build that passion? You know, there's been so many things that we did as a campus. Um, you know, one of the things that was most exciting and that I'm proudest of is, is our secret society of readers that we started with little Willy Wonka type golden tickets and meeting underneath library tables with flashlights and that then transferring over into us having the big culminating event of a book prom where every kid that was in the secret society brought their date aka their favorite book from the year. I loved seeing that. Um, but you know for me when I think about the biggest thing we did as a campus that got equally adults and kids excited was out when I first put all the staff on buses and took them to a scholastic book fair warehouse all over the country they exist but <laughs> I organized with them and I gave them title one money and I said like, go crazy, buy books for kids that you teach. And it was like target on black Friday when they first opened the doors, like people were running, pushing, grabbing carts, but that excitement of spending somebody else's money, knowing you're going to be giving something back to your kids. That was unlike anything else. And then we got to gift those to kids. And then we brought in a scholastic buy one, get one book fair at the end of the year and use the rest of our title money to give kids money to pick their own books. And within four days, we got to flood our community with 17,000 books for them to take home during the summer and keep. And we watched our reading scores increase in every single grade level just by giving access to high interest books. And then to get the parents equally as excited in Texas, I'm not sure what it is in every other state, but in Texas, every school gets federal money that is called parent engagement money. And so it's money specifically budgeted to use for to get parents engaged in different things happening at the school. And you aren't allowed to use it for food. And so we were thinking, you know, how can we use that money differently to try some different things? And if we really want to get the parents to understand the excitement about literature as well, well, then we need to give the money to them. So when I brought in that buy one, get one book fair, we had a family literacy night one of those nights. And I told every parent, I said, you know, if you come, the first 65 parents will give you $50, which is like a hundred when you have a buy one, get one book fair. <laughs> we were hoping for like 10 families because, you know, when you work in a high poverty area, like I do, you know, not a lot of parents come to those book fair nights. They don't have the time, the means, the money, or they're, they're just not interested. And so we've never had more than 10 families show up at one of those. So I was hoping we would like break 25 people or 25 families, but we had, a, it was at 530 at night. We had a line at 315 at the door and the line made it down the street at 430 that we had to call officers to come and direct traffic 
what? for a book fair. And <laughs> we ended up having with 69 families show up, which is four more than we had money to fund. But my staff was so moved by that seeing that take place that they gathered their money together and funded those additional four families. So every single family that arrived that night got to pick up a hundred dollars. So we gave them 50, but like I said, buy one, get one. It was like a hundred, a hundred dollars worth of books for their family that night. And it was so special. And for many of those parents, I remember one of the mothers told me it was her very first time that she ever got to shop with her daughter and tell her yes, just because, because of her lifestyle and the amount of work that she was having to do to keep the lights on the food on the table. She was never able to tell her daughter yes at Walmart or Brookshire brothers or anything like that. But just being able to give them that gift of yes and have it wrapped in literacy and and the love of books was just something that I'm so proud we got to do as a campus. Todd, thanks for sharing that example. Hopefully that inspires someone that's listening now to do something similar. And it was it was so thoughtful, you know, the way that you approached it and creative and thinking from the ground up. Okay, so how do we build this? And then uh, creating those structures. That's that's awesome. Thanks for for doing that. Uh, you did mention something I need to ask you a little bit more about, uh, a book prom. I've, I've never heard of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, I get asked this question really? so much <laughs> because everybody gets interested right away when they hear that. And it, it, it started asking so much that when I wrote my second book, Stories from Web, I put a whole chapter in there. So when I see people and they message me on Twitter or stuff, I'm like, just get this book. There's a whole chapter in there. But to give you the Cliff Notes version, you know, the idea was, after doing this secret society of readers all year, we believe in having culminating activities, something to wrap everything up. And my librarian at the time, Kathy French, she came up with the idea of the book prom. It's like a real prom, roll out the red carpet, photo booth, uh, music, they dress nice, there's food. Every kid brings their date, which is their favorite book they read that year. We invite community members and family of the secret society members. But the rule is for everybody you can't come in without a date. I don't care if you're the city mayor. You're not coming into prom if you didn't bring a date. So they have to bring their favorite book. And yes, some parents, we got to take their little book and flip it over backwards because the other kids don't need to see they were reading Fifty Shades of Grey. But they brought a book, so we're going to let them come in. Um, but then at the end of prom, my favorite part is at the end, every kid stands up and introduces their date to the crowd. And then the kids vote on the prom king and the prom mm. queen, which is not a child that wins, but a book that wins. And then we get to celebrate that book the next day on the announcements as our yearly prom king and queen. And we buy extra copies and let kids check them out. And we give some away and we really build it up like those are the ultimate books as voted on by their peers. That's really cool, building that excitement and all the different pieces that go into it. It's not, it wasn't just enough uh, to build a prom, but then you actually uh, elect a, you know, prom king and queen. That's that's really cool. I did want to talk to you about the book that you mentioned, Stories from the Web, uh, the name of the school that you were a principal, and it's uh, it's filled with inspirational stories. I was just wondering, you know, right now a lot of the listeners, you know, they might be um, discouraged, and I was just wondering if you'd be able to share, you know, a story from that book that that might be able to encourage uh, some of the educators listening today. 
Yeah, you know, every single book that I've written has, has plays a special role in my heart and in my career, and I'm so proud of all of them. But I don't think anything I ever will put out will compare to what I feel about stories from Web. Um, like you said, I worked at Web Elementary, which is where the title came from. But when I, it was my follow up to Kids Deserve It, and Kids Deserve It was such a success that I didn't know that I could follow it up, and and I wanted something to be different than what was out there, something to be special. And I remember sitting with a group of my teachers one day and just so in awe about their brilliance and none of them were sharing it with other people. And I thought, God, people need to know what y'all are doing. And then it just hit me. It's like every one of us that works at a school, at some point we make the joke, we should write a book about the things that happen here. <laughs> and I was like, but nobody ever has. And I remember one of my friends once told me, no matter how big your platform gets, make sure you amplify the voices of others louder than you amplify your own. And that's always stuck with me. And so being given the huge platform that kids deserve, it helped expand. I really wanted something special and unique out there. So I brought the idea before my publisher. They loved it. I brought the idea before my school family. They loved it. And so the book is filled with over 50 different voices. I wrote every chapter, but each chapter features excerpts from the school nurse, the counselor, the secretary, the custodians, the assistant superintendent, teachers, instructional aides, everybody. Everybody plays a role in the school. I wanted all their stories. And what started as a book written for educators really turned into a book 50% educators and 50% life. Because mm -hmm. even though we show up to work every day and pour ourselves into kids, we're real people too. And one of my favorite chapters in the book is a, book, is a chapter called It's Okay to Grieve. And in that chapter, there's four different uh members of my school family who share a piece of grief in their own stories, whether it is a suffering several miscarriages, finding out your grandmother passed away in the middle of your lesson, um, losing a fiance to a, for a, a terrible car wreck, different things like that, that cause you to grieve and second guess and hurt and still have to show up for those kids. And as I've had people read this book and really connect with it, the one comment they keep coming back to, and the reason why I know I was meant to write this book is that whole belief and idea of when I heard somebody else share a piece of their story, it reminded me that I wasn't alone in mine. And I think that's the power of stories. And that's the reason why we have to tell the beautiful and the ugly parts of each of our stories, because when we get caught up in our own pain and discomfort and hurt, we often begin to feel like we are the only ones going through it and it's made us all alone. And so that's been the most powerful thing about this book is just showing other educators that they're not alone in what they see or experience or are going through. And the other brilliant thing about this book is sometimes when you read these great books, like by Todd Whitaker or Eric Schinniger or Angela Myers, you know, like, and Donalyn Miller, like people I greatly respect and they're like edu heroes to me. But sometimes they can feel a little bigger than life because I've, I've made them that in my own head. And with a book like Stories from Web, half these people don't even have social media accounts and nobody has ever heard of them. But they're real teachers in the trenches every day pouring into kids. And it reminds you that, you know what, if they can tell their story, so can I. You made a point that it's important for us to share our stories, right? There's something powerful that happens when we do that. How are we able to get students to share their stories? 
You know, I think a lot of that just comes back to relationships. Um, you really have to spend time investing in and getting to know people outside of the traditional educational setting, uh, enjoying lunch with them, going out to recess, going to PE, um, going to their games or recitals, connecting with them, doing home visits. That's the first step. But they also need to see that you're willing to be a little open and vulnerable with them as well. Depending on the age you work with, you'll know the different levels of vulnerability that you can take with them. Um, But I think kids want to see that you're a real person too. They want to see you own your mistakes. They want to see you apologize. They want to see when you're hurting that it's okay to hurt, but you can still work through it. I think when we humanize ourselves as educators before our students, they grow an even deeper bond to you because you're not this unattainable authority figure in the room that they're never Ever going to know personally. In your 2017 TEDx talk, you spoke about some impactful community engagement activities. There was dinner with uh, the gentleman or dinner, dinner with gentlemen and a community cookout. I see uh, food as a familiar theme in your uh, community <laughs> engagement. How have these uh, community engagement activities, now I know you're no longer at uh, web, but you're, you're, you know, you're still probably connected. How have these community engagement activities made a difference in that school, and I, I could phrase it a little bit differently so you could connect with it. How did those community activities make a difference while you were there? You know, that's a great question. And I think it goes back to the reason why we did them. That plays into what happened because we did them. Um, I view our role as educators and, and especially as administrators as you've got to be a servant first before you can lead. And so I'm always looking at our job as educators are like missionaries. Missionaries don't sit at church and beg you to come in. They go out and serve you. And so as educators, I feel like we have to stop sitting in our rooms and in our buildings and begging people to come there and instead go out to where they are and serve them and tear down walls. And so whether that was our hot dog cookouts where we had no ulterior motives rather than we're going to show up and serve you free food, we're not going to tell you to do your homework, we're not going to tell you to be at school on time or anything like that. We're just going to show up and say, hey, we love you. Or whether that was our dinner with a gentleman where we said, you know, we roll the, we know the vital role that men play in kids' lives. So we want to throw an event that just celebrates you men for showing up for these kids, whether you're their children's pastor, their brother, their uncle, their dad, their grandfather, or the neighbor down the street. It doesn't matter. You help grow this child up. And so what we saw from that is community really believing that as a school we cared more about their kid more than a button, a chair, or a number on a page. And that was really instrumental for us in trying to make consistent change because we can sit all day long in the comfort of our school building and tell people how much we care about their kids. But when they see you willing to give up of your own time, of your own resources to come where they are, it shows that you are willing to put the effort where your voice is. How did those activities, and and they weren't a one-time thing, because I know you have you had different things going on. How did they make a difference um, for students when they came back into the classroom? You know, working as an elementary educator, anytime you can go visit where a kid lives, they love it. Like they tell everybody, like my my teacher or my principal came and kicked the soccer ball with me or stopped by and dropped off a pie or anything like that. Like they just love knowing that you came to see them because just like the adults, sometimes the kids also believe that we live at the school and you know, some of us do kind of live at the school, but but we got to show them that like we're real people too. Like we get out, we grocery shop, we go to games, we will come visit you at your house. Like that I think was a really big moment for our kids to say, wow, my teacher will leave that building to come see me. And even if you're going to an apartment complex to grow hot dogs where you're going to see all the kids there, 
that still feels incredibly personal for that kid. Like you came to see them. That's great. Yeah. So it builds on those personal connections as the foundation. And then that transfers into the into the school building when they get back there. Is that correct? That's right. I want to talk a little bit about and tap into some of your experience as a principal and even now, you know, as a district leader. You you get into a ton of classrooms, right? You've been in a ton of classrooms uh, throughout your career. What excites you when you enter a, you know, a classroom. You know, for me, the, the most exciting thing is when you walk into a classroom and you can hear the excited chatter of the kids where they're actively working on something and the conversation is about what they're doing at hand. And that's not an easy thing to accomplish. And I know that's not how every classroom looks every day, but you can feel, you know, it's just like when you visit a school or when you visit a business, the moment you walk in the doors of that building, you feel what they're putting off. And when you walk into a classroom, you feel what that vibe is and going on in the room. And as we know, we learn most when we're comfortable and excited and happy. And so when I walk into a room, I want to feel the joy radiating from those kids, the excitement radiating from that teacher, regardless of what they're doing. And so that I know that it's a place that they can't wait to be. And, you know, the hardest thing about being a, te- being a principal for me and visiting classrooms was that all it did was make me miss the classroom even more because I was like, ooh. That's a brilliant idea. I want to take and try that with my kids now. Or, ooh, I want to do that. I don't know why I never thought of organizing things the way they did. It reminded me about how valuable it is as educators and as administrators to constantly be learning from others in our own building and spending time in their room just seeing the brilliant things that they're doing. What do you think makes a great teacher? Again, I think it goes back to relationships. A great teacher knows their kids and knows how to connect with them and engage them. And a great teacher is willing to be uncomfortable if it means that they're going to grow and get better. Todd, this has been a great conversation. We're we're getting uh, to the end of it. Who do you want to give a shout out to? You know, I got to give a shout out to my buddy, Adam DeVico. He is also the co-author of my brand new book, When Kids Lead. Um, And he's also the co-founder with me of our Get Your Lead On and Camp Lead On conferences. And so getting to know him and not only write a book with him, but know his heart for education and then also get to do this conference circuit with him virtually and in person. uh, He's just such a great guy that pushes me to be better and isn't afraid to call me out on my crap, which we all need those kind of friends in our lives. And I'm just grateful for his leadership. That's great. Before I ask you to close things out, I have to ask you a little bit about the book. Can you give a little blurb? Yeah. So, you know, when we were writing, when, when we were, when we decided we wanted to write a book, we wanted to write a book for student leaders because you find all these great books that help adults and how to become great leaders, but we don't really pour that much into how to grow kids into great leaders. And Adam and I both had a huge focus on that in our classrooms as teachers and as school principals. And so we wanted to write a book that could be for coaches, parents, teachers or administrators and dealing with things like how to do classroom greeters, school ambassadors, student-led conferences, presentations, social media interns, like all these great things that you can do with kids to really help grow them into people who are going to change the world. Todd, it's time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? You know, we've covered a lot of topics today, but I think if I were to close it out with one thing, I'd want people to hear how much 
you are valuable, um, how great of a job you're doing, even when you feel like you are the worst teacher or leader ever. Um, We all are going through incredibly difficult times right now with the pandemic, with social unrest, with everything that's happening, that we can often feel like we're not really making a difference. And I would want people to hear the simple fact that you matter you're worthy, you have an incredible gift to give to the world and don't let others tear you down or tell you you're not good enough. You just keep going out there and doing what's best for kids. Todd, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, your passion, and sharing all of your insight. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. <laughs>